Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being here. We have this fascinating session today, a Judaic critique of neoliberal globalization. A lot to say about this with our friend and teacher, Rabbi Micha Odenheimer, who grew up in Los Angeles. Let's hear for LA. He earned a BA in religion from Yale University. As people like to say, uh, I went to a school in Connecticut, received rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and was a close student of Rabbi Shlomo Karabach. After moving to Israel in 1988, Micha began to write as a journalist reporting from Ethiopia, Haiti, Somalia, Thailand, Nepal, India, Iraq, Myanmar, and Bangladesh, as well as Israel and the United States for the Jerusalem Post, the Jerusalem Report, Haaretz, and the Washington Post, amidst other publications. He founded and ran the Israel Association for Ethiopian Jews from 1993 until 1998, an advocacy organization for better absorption policies, and Tevel Betzedek, an Israeli-based organization working with the extreme poor in the global south. His essays on Judaism and social justice have appeared in Eretz Acheretz magazine, Tikkun, and in book anthologies. He lives in Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh, Jerusalem, Israel, with his wife, Sosi, and his three grown-up children. Rav Micha, welcome, and thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Okay, wait. I have to admit people now too, right? Is that right? If I'm this host? No, no, we'll take care of that. We'll take care of that. Okay, good. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Muli and Eddie, for inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to uh, talk to you. And um, can you see the screen? Oh, no, did I? Yeah, it's shared already, right? You can see Adam Smith and capitalism. You can see that, right? Yes. Can you guys see the screen? Okay. I wanted to say hi also to Rabbi Shimon Brand, I see, is there, and um, Steve Greenberg, old friend of mine, and uh, honored for you to be here. And I, you know, you don't, so whatever. Great. Okay. Also, I see oh. Rabbi Mel Gottlieb has joined also. Oh. So welcome, welcome. Oh, Mel is here. Okay. It's just a, a pleasure to, to talk to you guys. And uh, okay, so here we'll go. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk for a while about, I think, probably, uh, yeah, I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes about capitalism and what is neo, what neoliberal globalization. Um, then I'm going to move to uh, the basis for a Judaic critique of it. And then at the end, come back to what are some of the alternatives that we're looking, uh, that we're looking for, um, that we're looking at and that which can, which can possibly come to replace uh, neoliberalism. Uh, which neoliberalism has taken a hit, you know, in the Trump period, and because it's more like about nationalism and so on and so forth, and also during COVID, Corona, because of uh, the interruption of trade. But it's still, make no mistake about it, it's still the hegemonist uh, way uh, that the global economy is organized. It's true, China is now up there. When neoliberalism started, it was really uh, unipolar. Uh, but now China's a big factor, but still the basic things that I'm going to talk to you about are still, uh, I think, very relevant, and the critique is still very apt, and the thinking about what the alternatives should be is something that is very, very crucial. So just to begin with capitalism. Capitalism, Adam Smith, capitalism began in the 18th century. Adam Smith published his book, um, which is considered the theoretical basis for capitalism, uh, which was called uh, the, the Wealth of Nations in 17, I think 1775, 1776, uh, about the time of the American Revolution. Um, he posited that selfishness, which he translated into, which translated into a desire for financial profit, was the greatest motivator of individuals. That motivation is what made people uh, put in tremendous effort. That that creates innovation. That's what creates wealth. And once everybody is working to selfishly gain without violence, but through finance, uh, through financial gain, then the invisible hand takes over and almost kind of magically, um, if everyone works to their own advantage, the market will create wealth for all, will put the right value onto, um, onto um, labor and onto uh, uh, you know, products and everything like that. Uh, Adam Smith therefore said that government intervention because it's not motivated by selfishness is counterproductive, but 
Importantly, Adam Smith warned that the market only works if there's a government or king who can make sure that producers pay for externalities. Externalities mean that, for example, if, a, if you make a factory and you're polluting, that you pay for the cost of that pollution, the danger to health, the, the, the health costs and the, and the pollution of water and so on and so forth. And you have to have an independent king or government that can make people do that. Also, he was against corporations and he believed in local ventures. Um, so that's Adam Smith. Now, the question of selfishness is something that, for me, that's really the basic problem because it's not selfishness itself. I'm a very selfish person um, and I believe in selfishness. But what is selfishness? Selfishness, I don't believe it translates for most people into merely into financial gain. And I think that that's the biggest problem with, uh, with, with this whole model. Because what is my selfishness? My selfishness is, I want a, my life to be meaningful. I want people to listen to what I'm saying and to hear, and I want to be part of a conversation. I want to be part of a common community. I want to be loved. I want to be respected. I want to be, um, uh, uh, you know, I want to have fun. I want to have adventures, um, you know, all selfish. Uh, but, you know, and I want to have a feeling that I'm, I'm, I'm doing good for people, uh, all those kinds of things. But I don't think that prof the profit motive the exclusivity of, of conceiving of the profit motive as what runs us is uh, really um, what I think one of the Achilles heels of the whole thing is. Now, there's a lot of positives about capitalism, and it just, you know, just very briefly, it breaks down the feudal class hierarchies, it encourages innovation and inter inter enterprise, capital, extra money is restless and nimble. It can go from one place to another. It can invest. It depends on freely given labor, not serfdom or slavery. And it can be a good basis for democracy. The negatives, I think, are that it tends to make people immiserate, to make people pay less and less in the worst, worst conditions for labor. If it's not checked, it leads to monopolies because people begin to cooperate with each other. It doesn't work so well with government what we call in Israel, Hon Shulton, the government's dependence on the wealthy, very difficult to control, and leads to constant unpaid for externalities, pollution, and other, uh, other things. And it commercializes society, destroys other aspects of culture, life, values, and nature. Um, there's a great book by Michael Sandel, a philosopher at Harvard called, um, it's called, what is it called? Uh, what Money Can't Buy, which is all about commercialization and uh, thinking about commercialization and what it does. Um, okay, now that's one introduction to what we're going to talk about is capitalism. The other introduction is corporations, because neoliberal globalization is all about multinational corporations. So what is a corporation? So corporations are defined as a legal or artificial person. Um, they, the, the, uh, it's, it's amazing to me that you can go through high school and even college without even knowing, because corporations are the most powerful entity that a social entity that exists. In fact, right now, 70, 69 or 70 out of the leading of the largest economies in the world, including nations, are corporations. So what are corporations? Corporations are a legal or artificial person. In other words, before a corporation, only human beings could own, sell, sign contracts, etc. There's tremendous power in creating an entity around which money, political power, and will of a number of people can coalesce. It's like taking a lever, how, how you can lift a huge rock with a few people pushed on a lever. That lever gives that extra strength. So that ability to coalesce around this artificial name, whether it's Coca-Cola or an entity like my NGO, Tevil Bitsetic, which in a way uses the same principle, but not for profit, so it's different. But that idea of having uh, an entity that's separate uh, gives a tremendous amount of power. One of the powers is the limited liability. If it does damage, you know, they, uh, I forgot who was who said it, that the problem with corporations is they, they don't have a body to imprison and they don't have a soul to go to hell. So there's very little that you can do and the liability of human beings in corporations is usually limited to the amount of money that they've invested. <clears throat> the, other, the other great thing, that gives a lot of power to corporations is, you, is the selling of stocks. You know, you make, okay, you divide the corporation up into a million parts and then you sell those million parts and it is able to raise huge amounts of capital and um, get many, many people involved and then also create political power. Um, 
So the East India Company was this huge corporation, one of the first corporations that controlled much of India and the British colonies. Because of that, in early US history, there was a huge suspicion of corporations, a strict regulation of corporations. Starting after the Civil War, this regulation started to crumble um, uh, because there were a lot of corporate, corporate lawyers because of the railroads. The Civil War involved the railroads. The railroads, because they went through people's private property, involved a lot of legal work and there were a lot of lawyers and they ended up, some of them ended up on the, on the Supreme Court. And so ironically, in, in 1875, I believe it was, the Santa Clara versus, the, versus uh, the state versus Santa Clara. So Santa Clara declared that what? That they have rights as a court, that corporations have the same rights as people do. And they did it using, ironically, the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, which was meant to protect uh, black people in the New South and everywhere, uh, which says that nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That was used to protect corporations because the Supreme Court declared, yes, corporations are actually people because that's the legal definition of them. So corporations before and after the Civil War, before corporations were highly regulated, they could only be incorporated in one state, sometimes only in one county, depending on the law in that state. Afterwards, anywhere, and as we'll see, they go global. Before, they could only engage in one activity, making furniture. Now, afterwards, no, they could be multi-armed, they could do whatever they want, really. Before, they had to renew, get a charter, it wasn't so easy, and then they had to come before a judge or the state legislator and renew the charter by showing that they had not done harm, or even in some cases, they had to show that they were doing good for society. Afterwards, uh, after the Civil War, uh, you know, it was a whole process, but it was easy and an automatic charter and the charter was forever. Before, limited in size, they could only have a certain amount of money or other forms of property or ownership. Afterwards, they could be as big as they wanted. Now, recently, there have been two huge gains for corporations. One is that through the World Trade Organization and the World Trade Agreement, which basically every country in the world, if they want to participate in trade, pretty much has to sign on to the World Trade Organization's agreement. They have, um, and we'll talk about that again a little later, but they, part of the agreement is that countries have to let the corporations into their country with the same conditions as local companies. So if in you know, Nepal, there's a little company making soft drinks. They, they can't be, the, the state can't say, you know what, we want our own soft drink company. We want it to thrive. No, they have to let in Coca-Cola and uh, Coca-Cola will uh, obviously uh, has the power to close that company down, to undercut its prices, to take it over. Um, and that is part of the conditions of the World Trade Agreement. So now from, from one county or one state, now corporations can work really anywhere in the world uh, under the same conditions as, as local, local companies. Um, and the, the truth is in the, in the United States and Europe, uh, we, we protected, I'm saying we, because I'm also an American citizen, we protected um, our industries until they were uh, strong but the, the developing world is not being given the same opportunity. <clears throat> Citizens United, that was about, I think about 10, 15 years ago, uh, corporations gained the right to contribute to political campaigns because they, have, they were given the right of, it was considered connected to the right of free speech and political rights, again, connecting to that 14th amendment that says that was interpreted then as saying that corporations are persons, even though it's to me somewhat uh, ridiculous to say that. Okay, so capitalism. So there, there's a history to capitalism and it doesn't remain the same. And you know, there was Teddy Roosevelt was very important in uh, trying to push back against monopolies. And then in the, after the crash in 1929, um, Keynesian capitalism in the Great Depression, John Maynard Keynes changed capitalism because Roosevelt, Theodore, uh, Fred, FDR adopted Keynesian capitalism. And Keynesian capitalism says the market is not enough. Markets are imperfect. Sometimes you need to have a uh, government intervention to create a balance of power. Markets leave people out. Markets can create po poverty. They're, they're, it doesn't work the way Adam Smith says. Yes, they're important, but they're not perfect. 
You need the power of states. You need the power of, of, of unions. And that is what was adopted in the United States during the Depression and after World War II. And there was much, much more equality in the United States after World War II because there was a Keynesian model of economics. Until the 1970s with Nixon, it began, and then more, even more in the 1980s with the election of Reagan and the fall of communism, the triumph of neoliberal capitalism. So then what happened was that in the 1970s, now we're getting a little bit to the global south, the developing world or the two thirds world. What happened was a lot of, there was a lot of influx of money into the United States in, in the 1970s, especially after the Yom Kippur War when there was an oil cartel of the oil producing countries and they parked their money in the United States. And then the banks in the United States, what they wanted to do was to use that money. They don't like to have it just lying there. So they need to use it. That's how they make money. So they lent it out. But because they had so much money, they lent it out at very low cost. And they convinced, they actively went and convinced basically every country in Africa and Asia and Latin America to take large loans and said, you're going to be able to develop with that. You're going to be able to develop with that. You're going to be able to build factories and you're going to become you know, a very strong economic power just like we are. Um, and the loans were at, were at low interest. But nobody told them that, the, or maybe they knew, but the interest rates rose dramatically in 1980 because there was a recession. America wanted the money back. They, they wanted the money back and they raised the rate of interest because when you raise the rate of interest, people park your money there because then they're going to get interest when, you, when they park their money in your bank. So they raised the rate of interest, but the rate of interest then rose for these loans as well. And countries beginning with Mexico were unable to pay the interest on their loans. And they were, there, they were therefore turned to the um, International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, which were, which were created in 1944 after World War II to stabilize the world economy. But Big Uke then, in 1980, I mean, exactly then, in 1980, that's when Reagan, Thatcher, and Cole were elected. All believed in Milton Friedman and Frederick Hayek, neoliberalism. They pushed back against uh, they rejected Keynes. They said, we don't need government intervention. All we need is the free market, privatization, and then we need, we need to have constant economic growth. That is the basis for measuring everything in economics. So just at that time that the IMF was taken over by these neoliberal economists who believed in Milton Friedman because Reagan and Thatcher and Cole were the ones who appointed um, these people, that's when uh, these countries were beginning to default on their on their loans. And you can't default on your loans because then you can't buy things that you really need with dollars like, like petroleum, like penicillin, things like that. So they needed to, to, to have these structural adjustment agreements um, that the IMF set up, the International Monetary Fund. Um, so, okay, I'm going to get to those structural adjustment agreements in a minute. But first, I want to say, ask, why do corporations want globalization? Okay, what happened was after World War II, there was a process of decolonization and which extended into the early 60s where countries became independent. But then in the 1980s, there was a re, the, the corporation said, no, we need our economy to be global. You know, countries had been involved with, you know, we wanna be independent, we wanna grow our own food and so, et cetera, et cetera. But now in the 1980s, there was a push. We want globalization, we wanna create one economy. And here I'm talking about economic globalization. There's some great things about globalization uh, in terms of, you know, globalizing feminism or globalizing human rights, et cetera, et cetera. But here I'm talking about economics. So now why do corporations, why do they so desperately want globalization? So of course, they wanted a cheap workforce. They wanted the natural resources of these countries and they wanted new markets and they needed growth above all, especially because of the stock markets. What does that mean? That means that once a company is in the stock market, it has to show, it has to show growth every quarter. If it doesn't show growth every quarter, it's in danger of losing its value. I mean, it's simplistic, but it's also true. And then to be, it, can, it can crash, it can be taken over by another company. So they're constantly looking for, for opportunities to, to, to grow, meaning to, have, to buy more things, to be have a, a, a greater uh, a greater net worth, and for all those things, they need to build more things, to produce more things. Therefore, they need cheap labor, they need natural resources, they need markets. So now, what were the main ingredients of corporate-led globalization? So first of all, privatization and commercialization of the of the global commons. 
We're going to talk in a minute about the commons means, but it means all those things that we held in, hold in common that we usually think of as free begin to be commercialized and privatized. Why? Because that's an area where you can grow. Um, you know, if water was free or it was public, but now it's private, that's an area where somebody can make money of it, that's growth. And that's how we're measuring the economy is through that growth. We want the conversion of two, the two thirds world economies from emphasis on self-reliance and food sovereignty to export oriented production from markets in Europe and the US. So that's what these structural adjustment agreements were pushing in connecting the world together, growing coffee in Ethiopia and Indonesia for import to the United States, collecting, you know, having the, the, the whole world be basically be one market instead of having countries be self-reliant. Globalization of the workforce, liberalization of cash flow. What does that mean? That means that, for example, in Israel, it used to be forbidden to take money out of the country. You could take maybe $500 out of the country. When Rabin's wife had a bank account in, in um, uh, the United States, he had to resign because of it. That's because countries realized that if cash flowing in and out of the country too quickly can totally upset a delicate economy. But now with the uh, uh, corporate-led globalization pushed by the IMF, countries have been, were forced to allow money to come in and come out. So in Thailand, that's what caused the beginning of the East Asian crash was a lot of money flowed into Thailand and then flowed out of Thailand. And according to you know, whims and rumors, very, very dangerous for economies. And then also, of course, the homogenization of global culture happens through uh, globalization. Um, now, what do the structural adjustment agreements include? So the main thing is you want to open up the countries, the, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund with these agreements, wanted to open up countries to foreign investment. Let these multinational corporations come in. Let people buy your resources. Let people sell their products in your country. Let them um, buy your products and take them elsewhere. Let them set up factories. Um, they wanted to, they, the structural agreements mean you allow global corporations to operate under optimum conditions in your country instead of favoring your own. Uh, your own. Um, cutting back on regulations that protect workers or the environment. You're, that's, that's a no-no to have those regulations. Um, countries can sue, according to the World Trade Organization, uh, uh, if, the reg if they feel like the reg these regulations are unfair, you're protecting the workers too much, you're protecting the environment too much. Raising the interest rates. Why would the IMF encourage countries to raise their interest rates? Because they want to attract, they, their whole idea was these countries should attract foreign investment. That might be good in a way, but it makes it very difficult for the local people to take loans because the interest rate is very high. So the small farmer can't take loans, um, uh, but the big uh, investor can come and put his money in the bank and get high interest. Devaluing local currency, the same thing. What happens is the, the IMF will say, you have to devalue the rupee instead of 50 uh, rupees to a dollar, now it should be 100 rupees to a dollar. Why? So the corporations will want to come in and buy things cheap. You know, the whole thing is to encourage this global trade, making the world one economy. But of course, what it does by devaluing the local currency is it makes it very, very difficult. For example, prices of petroleum rise. Everyone, that affects the prices everywhere, and it just makes people poor. Um, and then the thing that for me is the most is balancing budget by cutting back and privatizing education, health, welfare, and agricultural extension. So why would the IMF want countries to do this, to cut back on these things? Because they want to cut the budget in order to cut taxes, again, to attract foreign investment and foreign corporations to come into the country. And where do you cut? Okay, you cut the poor people, you cut education, you privatize education, privatize health, you cut welfare and agricultural extension, which means help to the farmers, uh, the people that I work with um, who, who are desperately need help in moving from subsistence farming to other forms of farming. Stopping subsidies and closing government factories, also no, no, according to uh, the IMF, you can't have government factories. Okay, I'm gonna skip over that. Just say one more thing before we move to the Judaic part, the commons, um, what is the commons? What is privatization and what is commercialization? So the commons includes the oceans, the fresh waters, air, forests, 
the town square. In other words, oftentimes now the town square where a lot of the commercial activity was taking place is now, uh, it's, now a, uh, it's now something private. It's a big box or it's a, it's a mall of some sort. And whereas the town square was a place that belonged to everybody, now it's privately owned. Plant, animal, and human genes. These are all things that were our common legacy, but are now being patented and privatized. Radio frequencies, our mental and sexual health. So for example, the, now I'm not saying it can't be good, but the farm, big farm industry doesn't necessarily, shouldn't necessarily be private though, entering into mental health, sexual health, um, as we've seen, uh, the vaccines, instead of being something supported publicly, it's uh, problematic that it's private. Many, many other areas are uh, becoming, become commercialized of what was once considered the commons, fresh water becoming privatized, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, I mean, commercialized. And what's privatization? That's public institutions, institutions or services that were once public and now become private. So schools, uh, even public schools that slowly get chewed up and privatized, universities, scientific research, prisons, police and army, welfare services, health services. Why do we want privatization? It's an opportunity. Now, I'm not saying I want it, but I'm saying why do the corporations want it? It's an opportunity for growth. Now, of course, there have been many victories. The internet, they wanted to privatize the internet. It didn't happen, meaning that we can still reach every website equally, no matter if it's my little website or the website of Coca-Cola, it takes the same time. They wanted to make a differential, that was defeated. Privatization of prisons in Israel was defeated. The drug companies were forced to provide AIDS medicine at cost in, in Africa and in India. The patenting of human genes was struck down by the Supreme Court, although I'm not sure what's happening with that now. And there is some growing recognition that inequality is bad for everyone. Okay, so now, wait a second. Uh, I think I have the wrong, okay, maybe this is the wrong, let me see the PowerPoint. I wanna get back, I wanna to get to the Judaic part. Huh, hmm, I'm gonna stop share for a minute because I wanna look for my, uh, I wanna look for my, my uh, where did I put that? I thought that was in there. Uh, one second. Okay, share screen again. Ah, maybe this was it. No, that's my McAfee. Ay -ay -ay. I'm having a little bit of a. Okay, just bear with me for a minute. Ah, here. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Okay. Ah. Uh, can find some Hebrew writing in here. Uh, sorry. Ah, okay. So now, how do we develop a critique? Yeah. Now, if you don't mind, try exiting out of your share screen and then share your screen again, because right now we still see your um, virus thing. Oh, okay. So stop share mm -hmm. and then share screen. And then here. I had it on the wrong, I saw I had the wrong copy. Okay. Hi, Steve. Wow, you grew a beard. Nice. Mel, I don't know if you're there or not, but hi. Okay, so now how do we develop a Judaic critique? By the way, I hope I wasn't I hope I wasn't too fast with everything. It's a lot to talk about, but I, you know, I hope that it wasn't too fast. So how do we develop a Judaic critique of neoliberal capitalism? And first of all, I just want to make clear that what we're talking about here is a is a critique. We need inspiration, we need principles. I'm not talking about you know, okay, we're going to stop, we're going to have the jubilee all over the world every, you know, every 50 years. It's not, we're not talking about, to my mind, about halakha. We're talking about inspiration from the model of human life that is, that is proposed and the understanding that's proposed. And so now we're going to get, we were, we were like in this kind of nuts and bolts very nerdy description of what was actually happening in economics. Now we have to stretch our minds a little bit, 
relax a little bit and think a little bit about what is the Judaic tradition and the Torah telling us. And then we're gonna to get to a specific text in, in a second. So first of all, to me, the narrative part of the Torah, uh, especially starting with Joseph, with the Yosef story, is very much about, about the dangers of accumulation. So you see that Pharaoh's power is based on the storage of food, which is really capital, the first capital, and is then um, used to enslave his own people and then, and then the Jews and then the, the, the Israelites, right? The people have to sell themselves basically to Pharaoh to get the food, the massive amount of food that Yosef has stored. Then in the economy of liberation um, is, is the mana and the mana, its main feature is it cannot be stored. And I think there's a deep message there. Again, it's symbolic. It was only during the desert. It was miraculous. But I think there's a deep message there of the unease that the Torah has with the vast accumulation of wealth and the understanding that this accumulation is actually what very often leads to enslavement. Um, then, of course, the Yovel, uh, the Jubilee, uh, the reset of the Jubilee shapes the whole economy, uh, theoretically. Now, of course, was the Jubilee actually used? Was it not? Did it ever actually happen or not happen? Not important. What's important is, that, to me, is the inspiration and the idea. And, um, and then we have to figure out what are the nuts and bolts. But the Jubilee not only redistributes all of wealth, all the all of all of wealth, which was you know land, was the basis for wealth, and still is the basis for wealth in many many ways. Um, but it also even it's not only the the reset every fifty years; it's that with the jubilee, uh, that in, ensures that the that the primary source of wealth, the land, is always becoming cheaper, right? Because what the Torah says is you're buying; you can only sell the amount of harvests. So there's the Jubilee, and then it's always getting cheaper and cheaper, the, the, the land. So you're not creating accumulations of wealth through ownership of land, which is still in the developing world, the greatest way that people, you know, people are holding on to these huge, in the, in the places that are really poor, often there are people with huge parcels of land. And also in the United States, real estate, the real estate bubble. So this is all the Jubilee not only redistributes the primary source of wealth, but the wealth is always becoming cheaper as we move towards a jubilee, then there's a jubilee and it's becoming cheaper again. So, and of course, ban on interest is also a ban on accumulation, on, on the wealthy, the rich, uh, the rich getting richer, on, 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 on this idea of, of you know, tremendous growth as the, um, as the marker of the economy. Okay, so another principle I think that's important is in the Torah is that ownership itself, the idea of property is relative while human need is absolute. So there are many laws that undercut ownership. So of course the, the Shemitah, which is a year when everything becomes hefker and everything becomes ownerless for a year. So of course it undercuts <coughs> the idea that ownership is absolute. Then you have, of course, the Jubilee year as we already mentioned, uh, where even before the land is redistributed, it's like another sabbatical year, and where God declares, uh, the earth is mine, you are strangers and dwellers with me upon it. You don't own anything. Uh, of course, the laws of the dropped and forgotten sheaves, like at Shechantea, which means that basically you have what you own when you own a field, even when, to the extent that you own it, is just that you, you, you make that first you make that first harvest, but you can't prevent people from coming in and picking up what 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 didn't what was dropped or what was forgotten, because what you own is the activity of harvesting the field that you grew. It's not an absolute ownership. And of course, the peyot, where you cut the corners of the field. If you've ever seen, I've seen like a jungle that was then cut into fields. The rec well, that's what creates ownership is that that absolute idea of ge geometrical, you know, the peyot. That, that ameliorates it. It, it, it cuts away at that absolute idea of ownership. One of my favorite psukim uh, about this, I don't know if you can see, maybe it's not big enough, but it's, um, in Kesef Tovet Ami, 
you lend money to my people, the poor amongst you, you shall not be a creditor, neither shall you lay upon him interest. We've already said about interest, which is huge. I mean, the whole economy now runs on interest. So, you know, this is huge. If you take your neighbor's garment for a pledge, you shall restore it unto him by the time the sun goes down. Okay, so what does this mean? This means, as Rashi says, somebody is reneged on their loan. They took a loan. They were supposed to pay it back in six months. They couldn't do it. So instead of paying it back, you took his, uh, a garment of his as a pledge. Even though he was supposed to have paid it back, you have to bring that garment to him back every day. Now, why? So the Torah says, Ki hik suta levada, hi simlata leora, li simlato leora, yishkav. Why do you have to bring it back to him? Because it is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? What, in, when, how shall he sleep? Okay, so that to me, the Torah doesn't have to say, it doesn't have to make an argument, it doesn't have to, how, how will he sleep? That, that's his skin, that's for his skin. It's like so obvious to the Torah that ownership or you know, financial ownership is trumped by uh, human need. And that, that image of the skin and of lying with something at night uh, the need to lie with something at night, that is uh, just to me so, uh, so such a visceral uh, example. Okay, now I want to look at a text uh, that I think is an amazing, uh, an amazing text from the Shulchan Aruch. Okay, so this, this is a Lachic text that uh, I don't know if any of you have seen it before, but I think it relates to a lot of what we were talking about with neoliberalism. Okay, so it says, Asur lasot schorab Eretz Yisrael, so basically it says that anything that is essential for life, any, it's mostly talking, it's talking about food uh, and uh, the Beit Yosef, the commentary in the Shulchan Aruch uh, says that um, it, it's, uh, that it's any food, basically. Basically any food, except maybe spices or something that's just to spice up the food. But I think it could also include education, perhaps, certainly healthcare. And, but it says is you can't do, you can't make it into commerce. You can't have a middleman. Each farmer brings his or her granary and from, brings the food from his or her granary, sorry, I missed a word there, and sells it so that all the essentials should be cheap should be zol. So in other words, there's a, a huge area of life that is decommercialized. That area of life that supports basic needs is not allowed to be commercialized. In other words, except for the people who are growing, okay, they can make, they, they grow and they, and they get paid for it. But it's meant to be, a, stay away from any kind of speculation, middlemen, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's protecting a huge area of life, basically, from uh, everything that's essential to life. Chaye nefesh, varim sheyesh bayam chaye nefesh, are protected from commercialization, ideally. Here's a continuation. Enotrim peirot sheyesh bayam chaye nefesh be'eretz Yisrael. It is forbidden to store up, or in other words, to hoard food that is essential uh, in the land of Israel. So not only can't you commercialize it, you can't even hoard it. You can't even say, I want to, I want to make sure I have enough food. So I, or, or I want to, you know, or even, um, yeah, I want to, I want to make sure that I get a good price on this food. So I'm going to hoard it. No, it's, it's forbidden to do that. Um, and that's called mafkia sharim, making the prices of essential foodstuffs go up. It says, "Kol hamefkia sharim oshat sar peirot oser peirot peeretz Yisrael o b'makom sherubo Yisrael harezek kimalveh beribit." Whoever raises prices or hoards essentials in the land of Israel or a place that is majority Jewish, that's a very good discussion. Why only there? Why a land of Israel? Why the majority Jewish? It's an important discussion, but not for right now. Um, it is as if he lent with interest. So it's connecting those two things that raising prices is like interest. Both of them are in the interest of wealth accumulating more wealth 
And that is not the ideal as it is in neoliberal capitalism, but is actually considered a very, very bad thing to do. And then the riff explains, he says, uh, when, when it says that you're not allowed to lend at interest, but that you should lend to every person, including the Gertoshav, you should lend to him money without interest in order for him to be able to live with you. In other words, instead of creating classes of poor and of rich, you want the chai achichaimach, you want you want social solidarity. That is a deep, a deep interest of uh, society. And finally, Emotsim, not finally, one before finally, Emotsim Peroch Yesh Bahen Chai Nefesh Meeretz Israel, the Chutzal Aretz, Oli Surya, the Lomer Shut Melech Zel, Rishut Melech Acher, Beretz Israel. It is forbidden to export essential foodstuffs from the land of Israel or from one kingdom to another within the land of Israel. So you see the emphasis in the Shulchan Aruch, in the halachic work, the great halachic work written in the 16th century in uh, Eretz Yisrael, uh, of the local, that, that, that's the local that's important, not the global, that there's a danger. If you export essential foodstuffs from one area, then you might not have it. In, that, that's not fair to, to the local people. You're making money at the expense of raising the price of these foodstuffs. That's what happened, by the way, in the last famine in India, is that the British, uh, the, the people knew that, that food, it was like in the 1940s, in the World War II, uh, they knew that, uh, you know, Am Amartya Sen writes about this, the great uh, Bengali um, uh, economist. Uh, they knew that there was going to be a pretty bad crop, not terrible, but pretty bad. So they started to hoard food and export it to England and to take it for their troops. And that caused, that's what caused a famine in which a couple of million people died. So here you see the Shulchan Aruch is onto this. They know it. Don't export essential foodstuffs. Don't make a global economy. Consider, first of all, the local. Okay, this last one. Um, so that means it is permissible for the city's inhabitants to create price limits on anything they want and to institute a fine on anyone who exceeds, exceeds that limit. So in other words, you 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 can make the the city. It's not that the market is 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 under control. I always say markets are great. I love markets, but the market has to be within a larger uh, circle, which could be called I call the common good, and also the environment too. That's something else. But it, the common good for everyone that includes the environment. So. Here it's saying that's what permissible. The city's inhabitants have to create price limits. They have to know what is the common good. It's not that people can make whatever they want. By the same token, Rashaim Balei Umanot, craftspeople, Lasotakanot Beinyan Malachatam, Kigon, Mifsok Benehem, Shaloya Se, Echad Beyom Shia Sechavero, Kyotzebeze, Bekomi Shiavor Latnai, Yani Shuoto Kach it is permissible for a guild of artisans or workers to create a labor charter limiting competition between them, for example, and to punish whoever doesn't obey. So again, the Shulchan Aruch is saying, you don't even open the market of labor, the free market of labor, because that can lead to uh, exploitation. But artisans and workers, they're ha they're, they have a right to create strong unions and um, and even to punish people who, who, who that's the Kiddush, they punish people who don't obey uh, those limits. So there's one more text I wanted to bring um, from Likute Maran to get to a more uh, kind of a spiritual uh, end in a more, end this part and a more spiritual note. We'll see if we have time to uh, go to the, uh, the last part I wanted to bring. But uh, Likute Maran, Rabbi Nachman, uh, Torah Yud Gimel, I'm, I edited it a bit. Uh, because, um, you know, for time, the sake of uh, lack of the complexity in time. So he says like this, Rabbi Nachman, and he, he's seeing the beginnings of capitalism in, in his time in the, in the Ukraine, uh, beginning of the 19th century. 
So he says like this, to draw down full and complete providence, is impossible until you've broken the lust for money. So in other words, it's not that the lust for money is our great savior. It's actually what prevents us from feeling security. Um, and he talks about it. He talks about your, the heart. There's a, there's a fire in your heart from, from, you know, the tavat mamon, what he calls tavat mamon, the lust for money, tavat mamon. And the breaking it down is through tzedakah. So generosity begins to end by, by being open to others and, and giving to others and getting pleasure from giving to others. That is what helps to break the suffering of the tavat mamon, the lust for money. Uh, for it says in the Zohar, a spirit wind comes down to cool the heart, the heat of the heart. And when the spirit comes down, the heart receives it with the joy of the melody of the Levites. So the melody of the Levites, the Levites would play music in the temple. And what he's saying here is that when this wind comes, the heart is like the temple. And when the spirit comes down, then the Levites begin to play this beautiful melody. Now, this is the part, this is one of the reasons I brought it, because he says like this, he says, the melody of the Levites, this is the aspect of transaction in good faith. Masa umatan bemuna. This is doing business, doing market, but in good faith, where one is not in a hurry to become wealthy. Now, why does he say that's the melody of the Levites? Because he says, for melody is transaction. Uh, as it is written, se'u zimra, Utnu tof, se'u masa utnu matan. So he compares what the way that the economy should be. It should, instead of competition, it should be like a musical orchestra. It should be harmony. It should be where people are, you know, gaining by everybody is gaining together because there's a harmony, like a like a melody. And that I find very beautiful, and I love that pun, masao matan, su'uzimra u'tenu tof. And this is the aspect of the revelation of the Messiah. For then the desire of money will be nullified, as it says, on that day man will toss away his god of silver and god of gods of silver and gods of gold. Um, and as long as there's idolatry of money in the world, there's anger in the world, and to the extent that there's a nullification of this idolatry, then the anger will be nullified in the aspect of the wind of his nostrils, Ruach HaPenu Mashiach Hashem, the Messiah of the Lord, and loving kindness will be drawn down into the world. So when you could cool that Tavat Mamon, that we're also, that this world is so caught up in, that, that uh, uh, desire for money, for more and more growth, et cetera, et cetera, then that's uh, 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 that that cools off anger. It cools off competition and then anxiety and also anger. And then loving kindness, chesed, can be drawn into the world. Uh, uh, and then when this love is revealed, um, and when this love is revealed, um, knowledge is drawn down, which is the building of the house. The building of the Beit Hamikdash is uh, is is knowledge. So there's this first the calming of the the calming of the spirit, the dis, the uh, of anger, and then the loving kindness, the Chesed, and through Chesed, Chesed is always love is always what brings down uh, knowledge and builds a new a new kind of consciousness. So it's a it's this is a process that I wanted to bring this Nachman. Uh, because I think it's an interesting also response to, to early capitalism and a vision of what can happen if we create a new economy, uh, which is more like uh, which is more like music. Now I don't know if we should now. I might use the time. I wanted to bring something about you know new ideas of economy that are growing, but maybe it's better to open up now to questions. Uh, Shmuley, you tell me tell me what to do. Amazing. Yeah, we have about ten minutes and. Um, I think given the time, it'd be great to hear a few questions from a few people, and then you can respond uh, sure. as you wish to wrap us up. Does that sound okay for you? Sure. Yeah, great. Okay, so great. So uh, who wants to jump in here with uh, some questions? Or commentary? Uh, yes, Rabbi Bolton, go ahead. Scott, it's fine. Scott, Sorry, uh, my name didn't get changed. I didn't know how to do that piece. Um, thank you. Micha, yeah? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, so with with the fundamental sources that start us down the path of really gleaning, no pun intended, uh, what this ethic is really going to be all about in terms of the the deep question of ownership, which I think is at the heart of the matter, right? And it's at the heart of this whole where are we headed and how does the whole Marxist play out and how does the whole Western play out uh, really take shape. Um, there's a Peshat level of Torah that I, I just can't sometimes steer myself away from, which is at the same time that there's this return of the cloak, the fundamental Rashi that you brought forward about really understanding you're not the owner and that the Rambam goes so far as to really say you have to just release it entirely. I was like deep in those sources this year myself. <clears throat> I still feel like there's a shot of like, you know, the Torah understands it's your field. Zakin la'adam shalobifanav, you, you want to create this kind of reality that you could actually acquire something for your friend. I mean, so to me, like there's a, a holy use of money in the whole track of thought of Zakin Ladam Shalobifanov, and then what happens in mystical texts and Hasidus with Zakin Ladam is also pretty powerful, right? So I wonder what you do with this kind of, you know, seemingly polemical tension uh, that, that sometimes sits together. To me, it sat more together like layers, and that ownership was assumed and not necessarily rejected. But I'm wondering, like, how you really you know, I, I push agree that with you. further. I, I really, I really do agree with you that from the Torah's point of view, there is such a thing as ownership, and there is such a thing as, as, as gain, and it's not a, it's not a terrible thing. But what I, what, what I do believe is, a underneath, there's a level underneath that's kind of recalling the Gan Eden, that's recalling the Man, that's recalling the Hefker, that that's that that we also have to remember. And that when ownership comes in conflict with basic human need, then basic human need trumps ownership. And that the, the same thing with the market, what I mentioned was that markets are great, but they can't determine life. We can't just hold on to the market and let it lead us wherever it is. That has to be held and we have to shape that and use that. We cannot give up the, the, the discourse of coming towards a, a, a common good. So yes, there is ownership. And in fact, um, you know, my teacher Shlomo also used to say, you know, like, uh, what if you came home, you got married, the next day you come home and uh, your wife doesn't have her uh, wedding ring on. You say, what happened? She said, a beggar came to the door, I gave her my wedding ring. You know, there are some things you, you don't give away as well. Um, you know, there is, there's something also beautiful about, about ownership, but that ownership you know, but it has to be held. It has to be very much in in a in a dynamic with, uh, with with questions of the common good and questions of basic human need. And it is not the final arbiter. It is not absolute. That's what I think. But there's so much to do. That's the whole Torah. They're right there. Is talking about that. <laughs> awesome. Reb Steve, you want to jump in? Um, it was beautiful. Micha, thank you. This is just incredible. It's such a pleasure to listen to the accumulation of your life's work articulated so beautifully. I just had a, 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 a limo this morning with uh, Noam Sion, and we, we kind of were dealing with certain issues far away from this, but nonetheless relate to the topic of desire and of Yetzirah. And, and I'm wondering... You know, uh, uh, Chaim Soloveitchik once said that what we're experiencing is a modern absolute rejection of a thousand years of asceticism. Um, and uh, there's something really powerful about the explosion of desire that creates vitality and the explosion of desire that you describe that creates greed and this tension even in Chazal, of Yetzirah being creative and destructive. Mm -hmm. And that tension seems to me like at the core here of like how, how we manage human desire altogether. And in maybe it's related to, uh, you know, to Rabbi Bolton's question as well. Right. So I, I, um, I think that oftentimes the, by, by channeling us into thinking somehow or, or creating opportunities that, you know, only for 
to think that only accumulation or commercial, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing, consumerism is what gives us pleasure. I think that we end up denying ourselves of so much pleasure. How many times do we, you know, all go out and dance and, in, in, you know, in, in ecstasy uh, or sing or, you know, many, many, many other, other things. I, I, I don't think, I, I think that uh, there's a certain way, you know, um, there was that great French uh, copyist, Charles Mopsick, who unfortunately died young. It was like sort of the Moshe Yidel of France. Yeah. And he wrote this essay called um, the, uh, the Body of uh, Generation. And it was basically saying that he felt that consumerism was actually connected to the split between body and soul that, that Plato posited and that Christianity took up. And that Kabbalah was a resistance to that, to that split. So I think that, that you know, oftentimes uh, desire is, uh, I mean, I, I, I think there is a point where, you know, we don't want that gray communist, you know, uh, you know, we want to express our individuality. I think where communism and socialism failed was it wasn't able to balance desire and our desire for uniqueness and our pleasure in our uniqueness with, uh, you know, the security that it was, that it was, that was giving. And that's, that's, our, that's part of our great challenge. I think we're up to it. Yetzer is a good thing, hara is not. So we have to, maybe we have to figure out how to kind of create Yitzarim that actually nourish human interaction and relationship and equality and... Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. If we're making the look a little bit more dial dialogue about that, I, I wonder, Michal, back from the beginning point, if I may again, just, you know, James Wolfenson was what, the fifth president of the World Bank and really felt that his, his ethic was shaped by a sense that he had to overcome this Yetzer Hagrid, you know, this, this um, notion that he wanted to establish ways within the bank's modus operandi to, to embrace like this whole understanding of an area and its impoverishment and even to the tribal uh, rivalries and uh, the potential, like, I'm into thinking about these spaces where corporations move in terms of their potential to tr be tripwires towards mass atrocity and genocide. So I've kind of looked at models that are trying to figure out how these corporations might have a little bit more lens on about the rivalries they're going to spark and the God forbid violence they're going to they're going to start quaking in the areas. But um, Jim, Jim would would talk about how he tried to combat that and that his picture of spreading it globally was only possible through these organizations that somehow miraculously came together with a certain divinity and, and, a, and, a, and a power to provide the table. Um, I don't know where you're going with new economies, but you know, what's, what's you know, back to that economic part, I'd love to hear you talk more about why these agencies don't have a face of the divine on them. Well, absolutely, Jim, uh, James Wilkinson, Jim was, uh, he was one of the first donors to my organization, Tevel Bitzedek. Uh, Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg set me up with him and he was very generous and wonderful. And he was a change. I mean, he, he brought in Joseph Stieglitz, who wrote a very important book, for me, one of the most important books I've ever read, called Globalization and Its Discontents, where basically all the things I've been saying about the IMF, he says, and he was the, he was the economist of the World Bank for a while. And Jim also, he, he ordered, he, um, you know, he, uh, he created a, a division in the World Bank where they interviewed thousands and thousands of, of poor people about poverty. Amazing, you can get it from the internet. Um, I think it's called Outcry of the Poor. Um, anyway, so Jim was, yeah, Jim was amazing. I think unfortunately what happened was that, um, like I said, these countries got into debt just at the time when the IMF was really taken over by neoliberals, uh, you know, Reagans, et cetera. Unfortunately, Clinton really pretty much embraced neoliberalism, even though he now he apologizes for it. He's very he's good at apologizing, which is not a bad thing. So he apologizes for what he did for Haiti. You can look at you can see it on YouTube. He's amazing. But he he kept he kept that he kept that going. And then of course Bush kept that going, and even Obama. Now Biden seems to be doing something else, and we'll see if that has an effect also on the IMF. 
But until now, the IMF and the World Bank, well, the World Bank, World Bank's a bit different, but because um, it's mostly about huge development projects, but it worked hand in hand with the IMF. Um, but they, I think that a lot of people there honestly believe that they were doing good, you know, some of them. Um, and there was also a huge, or, a huge uh, influence of corporations on the IMF. They were very involved in setting, in setting policy. And I don't even blame the corporations because now they're set up by law to just, uh, they're supposed to make money for their, uh, uh, for their uh, you know, the people that own their stocks. That's their main, uh, main thing. So there really has to be a, a, a new a reset of corporate law, um, I think. You know, very important re-regulation of corporations. Perfect. Thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you, uh, Rabbi Odenheimer. This was just a phenomenal, phenomenal presentation and discussion. At, and I think all of us were over here writing notes and, and, and really drawn into this amazing presentation. Uh, such, a, such a beautiful blessing uh, and, and blessing to be here with all of you. I wish you all the best. Uh, thank you for, for those of you who are joining us here, for those of you who are watching on the social medias. We wish you an amazing day. Once again, thank you so much, Rabbi Onenheimer. Uh, you are just a phenomenal uh, teacher. So we are so happy uh, that we were able to share a space with you, thank you today. So much. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.